The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, guess what time it is? It is time for War Stories 7. War Stories 7. That's exciting. I can't believe we've done this six times already. I know, I know. And not to mention all the war stories when they were just part of the actual episodes. It's been a war story-ish thing. Very, very bellicose. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm glad we're getting into it because we have some new ones along with some classics that uh, were attached to those episodes that we're interweaving into here. And uh, I I don't want to, you know, spoil the lineup, but let's just get right into the first one, which is Wally Pfister. You did a great war story about uh, working for Roger Corman with Faden Papa Michael. I could listen to his Roger Corman stories all day long. Here it is. Here's Wally Pfister. I was finishing my last year of AFI. I had met Janusz Kaminski through um, a mutual friend, and Janusz brought me on. Uh, he was working as a gaffer and second unit DP on these small Corman films that Faden Papa Michael was shooting. And so I kind of fell into it that way. Janusz brought me in and I met Faden and Faden and I became fast friends and I ended up shooting second unit for him. But so I'll paint a picture of this factory, which is what we (laughs) sort of considered it. It was in the heart of Venice now that real estate is worth a fortune. Now it was on 600 South Main Street in Venice, California. And uh, it was an old lumber yard. Roger, of course, was titled King of the B-Movies, and this was the late 80s, so this was like, I was around there in like 89. So the way the way that place worked was they were just cranking movies out, and you know, roughly 12 movies a year. So there was always a movie in pre-production, a movie in production, and a movie in post-production, constantly. And on that lumber yard, the former lumber yard, they turned the buildings and the little warehouses into, you know, um, it's a stretch to call them stages, but that's what they were to us. (laughs) And uh, there were several stages there. And then all the editorial facilities were there. And then all the production offices were all there as well. So everybody was around all the time. Roger was actually in an office across town in Brentwood. It was far more pleasant than the the lumberyard was. And, you know, I, I actually remember one of the first movies that I was asked to shoot second unit on, which they uh, they had another little trick where they called the films by, they would change the title of the film after you shot it, because obviously the title that you want to use to attract actors and to get people to come and work on the movie is different <clears throat> than the title that you want to put on the VHS tape to try to sell the movie. <laughs> In other words, the, the latter is far more exploitive. Um, so I, I came to work on a movie called Nightlight and shot second unit on that and uh, it was released as Slumber Party Massacre Part 3. <laughs> I remember one of the first things I was sort of asked to do, they're like, 
okay, well, this this girl's sitting in the driver's seat of the car, and you know she gets a drill through her stomach. The, the, the you know the bad guy is, is in the back, the seat behind her. So you know they have we had these two effects guys, the Jones brothers, who'd come out from North Carolina, where obviously things were jumping after Evil Dead and the kind of beginning of the North Carolina film scene, and they they did all the effects on every Roger Corman movie. It seemed. And so they had rigged like this plastic drill bit to the front side of her belly, covered up by the clothes. And I braced myself. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get a cool angle on this. And, and so I braced myself in the foot well of the passenger seat so I could shoot a, an up angle of her. And the idea was they turn on this electric motor and the, the drill bit turns and then they just crank this blood through that thing and splatter this blood. So sure enough, you know, we're rolling and they flick the switch and this drill bit starts to turn a little bit and then it starts to wobble and then they hit the blood and the blood just shoots the drill bit off of her belly. Blood splatters all over the entire uh, entire car interior, all the windshield, all over the lens, all over the camera. And I remember I was wearing these like Converse All-Star sneakers. They were just completely splattered and blood red. And they were kind of cool. I was like, oh, this is kind of, you know, this is the Roger <laughs> Corman edition Chucks, you know. So I kept those for many, many years in a closet <laughs> afterwards. That's but awesome. I just found myself walking out of there like completely soaked in blood in my clothes. And, and the DP of the film like kind of saw me over there. I was the second unit DP. And he kind of saw me and I'm like, man, I just fucking destroyed my clothes and he's like <laughs> welcome to Roger Corman <laughs> next up is Faden Papa Michael and uh, I'm not even going to tease it we'll, I'll just you know here it is Faden Papa Michael so back then, yeah, we were doing, I think, uh, well, I mean, I did seven Roger Corman movies in two years. They were all like 15-day shoots. And then Wally Pfister was on it. And it was great. It was a great film school for us. Uh, I mean, I never got to go AFI or any film school, but this was my film school because it was not like a film set where every student helps. And here it was really like structured like a mini studio. And you have to be super fast. and. But lighting-wise, I mean, we, you know, we were shooting exploitation movies. Uh, it depended what set Roger had in his lumberyard on Main Street in Venice. There was basically three sets. There was a spaceship set, a strip club set, and a castle set. So my story about Roger is like, he didn't want you to use Dolly, Dolly track and the dollies because he thought it's just going to slow them down. They're not going to get the work done. But it was, the word was like, can't have Dolly track. I mean, can't have it. And, uh, you know, if Roger comes, he'll be really upset because he thinks you're wasting too much time on fancy moves. So we had a PA. We literally had a PA in the parking lot, always on the lookout. And then he would come running in. He'd see Roger's gray Mercedes pull down Main Street and run in and, uh, and go, oh, Roger's coming. And we'd yank the camera off of Dolly, hide the track. <laughs> roll the dolly in the corner, put it on a tripod, and I'll stand and pretend to be shooting it on a tripod. And he typically would only come for like 15 minutes, like, oh, hello, Faden, make sure you get full frontal nudity, you know. Uh, it was some comment like that. More blood. And then he'd leave, and then we'd set the track up again. And so that, that, was, that was pretty funny, I think. But or he didn't really care and it was just a thing he was doing because, I mean, he did see the movies. He did see that the shots were trying. Anyway, 
and that was fun. So that was Faden Papa Michael's war story. Faden Papa Michael, who I might say is our reigning champion, I believe, having been on the show three times so far. That's right. Everyone else out there, they're gunning for Faden, trying to get up, get up over three. <laughs> so who do we have up next in our war story arsenal? Uh, next up is Ross Emery, who talks about doing the bullet time for The Matrix. So cool. One of the things that's been sort of ingrained into film history now is the Matrix bullet time shots. But what a lot of people don't understand is how much effort went into kind of like that very small piece of film that uh, ended up being, I think, eight seconds or something like that in that movie. But the amount of man hours that went into that, that particular shot, wow. Dodge this. In raw terms, it probably took us about four days to set up that single shot. We shot it at Fox Studios in Sydney in stage four, and uh, it's kind of a 360 degree green screen, uh, 250 stills cameras, uh, 300 frames a second photosonics camera. But uh, the main key to the bullet time and the ability to kind of uh, achieve that shot is essentially the power consumption of the, the lighting that we needed. We couldn't find film generators that were big enough and powerful enough to power the set. There was not enough power on the lot. We could have diverted all the power from all the stages on the lot in Sydney to stage four, which is the smallest stage, and there's still not enough power on the lot to actually power all the lights we were using on that one shot. You know, it was well over a thousand amps. It was sort of something that I don't think I've ever seen before, the amount of light used for a single shot. It was so hot that if we left the lights on for longer than about 10, 12 seconds, Keanu's wardrobe would actually start to steam and smoke. And he was on wires in the middle of this whole 360 thing. And it was literally like we would have the, the lights set at a certain level and the first AD would kind of call, okay, lights. And we'd bring the lights up to this intense level. You could basically, if you were standing on the cables that were running from the distribution boards, you literally you would start vibrating and the, the green screens would bellow out because the instant rise in the temperature on the set kind of went up about sort of 12 degrees in you know, about 10 seconds and then we'd roll the cameras. The shot itself took like three seconds to shoot and literally and they said cut and then two PAs would like split the green screen and like just run through the slit in the green screen with a giant air conditioning duct and pointed at Keanu's chest to cool him down. And the most fun was kind of like working with the electrics department who literally said like we're like racking up records in terms of how many lights we'd used and how much power consumption we used. The generator was a 1.2 or a 1.5 megawatt generator that literally once we pulled all the lights up to full level, it'd be like revving so hard, there'd be like a one foot flame coming out the exhaust of the generator. This is the sort of stuff that electrics departments just, you know, they just live for, they love this stuff. And it was actually sort of so kind of damn exciting when you sort of see the electrics working on this set. And they were all so excited because they, none of them had ever sort of seen a setup like this before. And, you know, this is something we'd kind of designed and conceived literally only weeks before we ended up shooting it to kind of, and again, like at this point, I think someone had done a bullet time version for a commercial or something or a music video, but we were doing it in a narrative film and really using 
using the, the technique in a narrative film. And so it was really, really lovely to kind of have something which was really could get your teeth into as a technical exercise, but also had the payoff of once you see it in the final film, it, it belongs there, it lives there now, and you couldn't imagine the film without a bullet time shot of Keanu kind of going over backwards and avoiding the bullets from the agent. All right, that was uh, Ross Emery. I uh, really enjoyed that one. So everybody, if uh, you need to use the bathroom, use it now, because uh, <laughs> we have Shane Hurlbut's amazing war story that I believe is our record longest war story that we've ever recorded. I, I think so, too. I think it comes in around eight or nine minutes, something like that. So so buckle up. It's a great story, and it has one of the most unexpected endings, I think, of <laughs> one we've ever Qu- had. Quite a button. He, he buttons out of this perfectly. Here it is, Shane Hurlbut. I had gotten a script called Drumline, and I got this call from uh, a producer named Tim Bourne. And uh, he called me up and he goes, so Shane, you know, what do you think of this script? And I go, Tim, I don't get this saints go marching in shit. How is this ever going to be a movie? People sitting there beating on drums and dancing and stuff. I just don't get it. He goes, where are you staying? And I go, "Uh, I'm in the Westin in Kansas City. He goes, tomorrow. (laughs) Hangs up. I'm like, what the what is this, like some secret society shit, right? So then I, I get in and I open my door and there is the video roller cart. You remember those little roller carts, the AV cart that had a monitor on it and had a little uh, VHS deck to it? So all it's there was a tape on the top and it said, watch me. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This is so secret society shit. I love it, right? Not only does he hang up with me, he then sends this whole thing up. So I puts the thing and the screen ignites. And all of a sudden he goes, Senate erupt. And this drum line just starts and all this moving and the sound is incredible and they're sticking and they're flipping and they're spinning their timpani drums and beating the bass drums and everything and just going all around in this thing and I was running for the phone. I like picked it up and I go, Tim, he goes, oh, you saw the VHS, huh? And I'm like, this thing's unbelievable. I, I cannot wait to be on this, you know, movie. And he goes, oh, so he don't like the saints go marching in bullshit? You know, he was like giving me a hard time. I'm like, Jesus, I'm all passionate about it. Now you're like, you know, pounding me into the ground. He goes, all right. I'll get you on a plane tomorrow. So I literally went directly from Kansas City right into this film. And when I landed, I met this director, Charles Stone, who I absolutely love. And he had done the most successful commercial ad campaign in history. He came up with the WhatsApp ad for Budweiser. So out of that... We met and, uh, you know, he he acts in the commercial as well. So I had seen his face on all the ads and everything. So we started talking 
And, you know, when you read a script, and this is what you kind of, you know, we talked about, you know, you read a script, you start to, you know, you read it and then you start to visualize it and you start to see what the light's like and what the camera's like and everything. So I got the Senate that's just, you know, sticking and beating these drums and all this stuff. So what do I envision? I envision that damn, you know, tunnel at USC where that band comes out of that tunnel and they come into the LA Coliseum and the crowd goes crazy. So we go to the location and, you know, he goes, hey, Shane, how you doing? You know, and he's showing me around. He goes, all right, Shane, this is the tunnel that they come out of. And it's literally like this conference room. It was fault ceiling, four feet wide, and two double doors at the end of it, and 60 feet long. I go, okay. And then think about what you envision, the music room to this incredible, you know, orchestra of of music this band you think oh it's double and triple and quadruple layered and there's sound baffles and wood and all this stuff and you got the the conductor down in there and so i go from that okay here's the tunnel and then he walks me in to a nine foot high ceiling with two different roster layers of six inches high fault ceiling fluorescent lights, a mural painted on cinder block. And he goes, this is Dr. Lee's music room. Okay. Then he takes me to the Coliseum where I walk in and I'm thinking, oh my God, it's gonna be you know, Cinema 360 in here and that's gonna be amazing. And this is what I put into my mind. And he walks in and the, all I see is just brick houses and street lights and junk across the street, and then 10 uh, floors of stands, the length of a football field. He goes, this is their stadium. And at the end of that day, I turned to Charles Stone and I said, so how depressing do you wanna make this movie? It was day one. <laughs> and what I learned from that experience was your vision and what you put in your head until you get into the director's head, it really means nothing. Because what he taught me was this is a tech school in the middle of the South. This is where this, this is this culture, this subculture. They're not rich. They don't have the LA Coliseum. They don't have the big tunnel. They don't have the monstrous music room, but in their heart and passion, they're incredible musicians. And how can we show that? And all of a sudden, it's just like the next day, I was like, I love this. That mural, this is gonna be cool because they're gonna be up there on the drum line and the, the ceiling's gonna be really close to them and claustrophobic and you're gonna feel the weight of, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it started to 
go into my process and my thought process, and then I completely got into his head of where this film was, and then I just started throwing gasoline on it. And then I could immediately go into where the vision was and then bring that to life in exactly the way he wanted. And that movie became so successful. And like, it's the kind of film where everyone's like, you shot Drumlight, I love that movie, you know? And it's the kind of thing where I didn't even know what I was getting into other than seeing that Senate thing. And then I got on a plane the next day. All I can remember is that tunnel that haunted me to the day. I was like, you know, cause that was my vision in my head. I was like, how can I make this tunnel exciting? So you think about it and you're like, okay, I have a tunnel that's four feet wide. The ceiling is eight feet high and it has fluorescent lights. So I get with my gaffer, Dan Cornwall, and I'm like, all right, let's punch holes in the side and put can lights down the whole uh, left and right side so it shows dimension, so there's streaks on the wall. We'll turn every other fluorescent off on the thing so it has light, dark, light, dark, and we got streaks on the wall. So at least, you know, it has a semblance of something cool, right? And then, I'm like, what if we take a 21 mil, jam the thing up to the ceiling? So now all of a sudden we make this fault ceiling a statement. Before, you know, if we just put it down here, then there's no statement. But if I jam that camera right up against the fault ceiling, then you're just seeing that ceiling splay out. You see all the blue and gold down the thing. And then what if all of a sudden this stick spins and goes right across the horizontal of the frame. And then this other hand comes in and fucking goes, and then the band erupts. I said, that's how you turn this into a tunnel shot. And Charles Stone's like, that is fucking incredible. So everyone in the, the room, all my camera team and everything, had earplugs in. I wanted to hear it every single time with full force because it, that tunnel that became my nemesis in the beginning became my fuel of passion for the whole film because when he hit those sticks and that band erupted in that tunnel, it was like being in a missile launcher where the sound just pushed out right at camera and it literally hits you and hits you in the heart and each time it's like I make it louder you know it's like I could I was like so into this and I remember that after that I got sick as hell and then they called me the plague and I went down in flames and I went around with a mask and I drew like a red uh, lipstick on it and nose marks and everything because I didn't want to get people sick and because Atlanta for anyone who says that Atlanta is nice it's not nice ever you know you can all have that place shoot as many movies as you want there but it's not California you fucks. <laughs> <laughs>All right, so that was Shane Hurlbutt, and who do we have up next? Uh, next up is Alice Brooks. Uh, it's Ooh, brand new. Basically, about the time she realized that she wasn't an actor and was a DP. Amazing. Here's Alice Brooks. I grew up 
in New York City until I was 10, and then we moved to Los Angeles. And my father was a playwright, and my mom was an actress until I was born, and my sister, my younger sister was born, and my mom gave up her career to be a mom, and she had us instead be actresses. And I did 40 national commercials as a kid. I'd spend every Tuesday the year I was in fifth grade going to NBC to shoot Late Night with David Letterman, and I got to be on Broadway once doing a tribute to Mary Martin. When I was around 15, it became clear to me that it was not my dream, but it was my mom's dream. And I had was auditioning for a role in a movie called While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock. And I auditioned for the part seven times and I'd have to leave school for it. And I loved school and it was all the way in Santa Monica and we lived in the Valley. And on my last audition, it was between me and the person who got it. and. I left the audition knowing in my heart the part was not mine. And my mom and I took a walk on the beach in Santa Monica, and we hadn't talked to my agent yet. We didn't know, but I knew. And it was beautiful. It was late, late afternoon, and we were walking down the beach. It was perfect. My mom and I always loved going to the beach. It, the beach to me represents a place where inspiration comes from, where you can breathe. and. I said to my mom, Mom, I just don't want to be an actress anymore. I don't want to leave school, be pulled out of school to go to auditions. I want to do well in school. I care about school. And I looked down and there was this feather. It was gray with these white markings on it. And I picked it up and my mom said she knew. And for me, the feather represented that I was right, that I was right to tell my mom. I was right to move on. and. It represented some a sense of freedom, of being able to leave the nest, of flying away, of growing up and making my own choices for my life. All right, that was Alice Brooks' war story. Up next is Robbie Ryan. So yeah, on the film The Favorite, we were in one week into shooting and we were on the second week and it was all going quite well and then I got a phone call on the way home from work I was getting all these phone calls during the day and I didn't answer them because I don't really answer the phone on film sets but I uh, got in the car to go home and my brother said he was uh, my brother was, I, I thought it was going to be my dad ringing up but it was my brother and he doesn't really ring me very often <laughs> and he goes he's sitting down and I was like oh shit what's happened and turned out my father had been in an aircraft crash plane crash a plane that he had built himself. So my dad is a quite, uh, he was quite a, a genius really. And he um, was 84 years old and it was the first flight of the year of a plane that he built 20 years ago. And it's called the Long Easy. And uh, he built it when my mum died. Because so, on her deathbed, she said, you better finish that bloody plane because it's been in the back garden. He built it in the back garden. So he made that to finish for that. And then it's so kind of circular, the whole, irony of his death was due to something that she told him to do so it was very sad and um, yeah no, I kind of I didn't know what to do it was a shock it was like so I was in the car going and luckily I had a lovely guy driving me called Monkey and he was really um, such a good guy and he helped me through that journey and I went to work the next day and I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and I did it, and I, I, because it was so shocked, I didn't know what to do. I just went, all right, I'm gonna go to work. Because like, thanks dad, you've 
you just kind of left the world without saying goodbye. And I went to work and then I did the whole day on a Tuesday. And by the middle of the day, I was very, very strange. I didn't know what was going on, whether it was coming or going. And luckily the producers who were amazing on that film came up and said, You're, we're sending you home now. So I was in England, I had to go back to Ireland. And they were brilliant. They let me go back and I so spent a week away from there. And it was very, very weird because I've never had, obviously nobody, you know, everybody loses their parents or hopefully, you know, the parents don't lose children. But uh, I, I kind of, my circumstances were very unusual because I was on a film and I'm, I'm so loyal to working on a film, I didn't know what to do. And it was a really unusual kind of situation. And I think it's amazing how the family of filmmakers is the same as the family you grow up with because they are your family as well. And I kind of, blessed to be in a good family at the time and went back to my own family and you know the the parallels are quite similar you know and there's ways people support each other and take care of each other and I was blessed to have that in the film community and you know I think uh, it's sometimes a business that gets a bit of a hard rep but it's actually if you're in it like me as a lifer they're your family. That was Robbie Ryan's War Story, and now deep from within the War Story vault, the w- w- World War One of War Stories, uh, recorded in your old location when, when you actually were in Hollywood and not in Burbank, uh, the amazing Christian Seabolt, yet another Roger Corman person. I had a project in the middle of the country somewhere that required us to shoot a very large interior of a military barracks. That is a space with beds that's, I don't know, 200 feet long with you know, hundreds of windows. And so we had a, a very large lighting package, you know, big, big, big truck with lots of HMIs and we had a big grip truck. We had everything to put lights into the windows. As we moved into these barracks, I said to the gaffer, you know, I don't see one light on. I see the lights out there. They're all out there, but what's going on? You know, you ran out of gas. He became pale and he was fidgeting around. And I'm saying, just just say it, you know, just, just explain it to me. And then we'll fix it and then, you know, we'll shoot. And finally he said, you know, we have everything. We have, we have all the cables. We have, as you saw, the big lights. We have everything, but there's one adapter missing and I can't plug the lights in. I mean, this is not a practical joke or something, right? They said, no, can't turn the lights on. We can't come back. This is our day to shoot these scenes. And so I went to the key grip and I said, you have mirror boards on the tree. You have a 44. You have mirror boards, you have reflector boards, you got all kinds of shiny stuff that reflects the sun, right? And he said, yeah, we got tons of them. And I said, it's a blue sky out there. The sun is out. The sun's going to be out for another six or seven hours. Pull all the mirror boards, pull all the reflector boards, anything that reflects light. And so they put them outside the windows, aimed them in. We did our scenes and, and they looked fantastic. Where I needed a little fill, we would just take one of the mirror boards and bounce them off a, a white board or something you know, for a little fill and it was contrasty, and, and even the producers called me the next day when they saw the dailies. Man, how did you do that? That looked incredible, you know, all that hard light was so dramatic. 
I had used our big HMIs, it would have looked like, I don't want to say boring, but like anybody else would light it. And next we have Lachlan Milne, and he talks about shooting the uh, critically acclaimed and amazing and actual Oscar-winning uh, film, Minari. Check it out. Probably my most recent version of things that never go wrong in the film history going wrong was last year, and it was on a film that's very special to me, a film called Minari, and Isaac, forgive me for saying this, but we were doing some of the travelling stuff in the, the Yi family's picture vehicle, throughout Tulsa and so we were we were shooting 2019 Tulsa for 1983 Tulsa with zero production design. So right off the get-go you're limited as to what you can see out the window and we're in a picture vehicle that has no air conditioning with the windows up because the sound department had left their recording device in the car which is perfectly fine but obviously they wanted to get whatever audio may or may not be said. Obviously, in hindsight, if you see the film, there's zero audio. It's all set to music. So we could have had the windows down. It was July, so it's, what, 100 degrees outside? There's six people in what was kind of like the Griswold station wagon, you know, that wood panel kind of thing. Stephen's self-driving, Yeri's in the front seat, and I'm in the back with the two kids and a camera. So straight off the bat, there's not a hell of a lot of room. We're driving around in this 100-degree car. Everybody's falling asleep with the exception of Stephen. The kids, I'm, I'm having to pull my handkerchief off my neck and pat the kids down who are just profusely sweating so that I can actually get a shot of them. Isaac's lying sideways in the trunk with a monitor on the side so he can see what's going on. Everybody's perspiring. And then all of a sudden the car starts making these weird sounds. It's like, and it's really sluggish to drive. It's like, what? what? Did you, is that me? It's not, and we're asking everybody around in the vehicle, it's like, I think, I think something's wrong with the car. Anyway, whatever, it'll be fine. Let's just, keep, let's just get the shot done, and then we'll move on, we'll go and have lunch, and it'll be fine. So then people are honking every now and then, and I just thought, oh, it's, you know, as you see, Stephen Yoon, it's like, oh, Walking Dead guy. But we eventually get the coverage we need to do, we pull around to the, um, the picture car to drop it off, we get out, I walk around the back, and both the rear tyres are flat, so we've been driving around Tulsa in this like legitimate shitbox with no air conditioning and no power steering and two tires for the last half an hour. But you know, it's one of the beauties of independent filmmaking. You watch it and it's set to this beautiful piece of music by Emil. The characters are interested. I shot Alan asleep and that's in the movie because he was dehydrated and perspiring to the point that he was gonna pass out. Um, but no one will ever know. All right, that was Lachlan Milne. And uh, who do we have up next, Delia? Up next is Armando Salas. He also has uh, a story about the heat. <laughs> so on the first season of Six, during the season finale, we had a raid on a compound that was an old cement factory in Charleston. And of course we're shooting in the summer and during a heat wave. And all of these guys have all of their tactical gear on. We have helicopters coming in. We have militia guys with trucks and thousands of rounds are going off. And we're doing these long takes of people jumping in out of helicopters and, and infiltrating the space. And the director and I are inside this factory 
having a conversation and we're realizing that our brains are literally melting. It is 100 degrees outside and we would walk outside and just be like, oh, thank God. It is, <laughs> it is so much nicer out here. That, and, and we basically did this entire finale at this cement factory and all of the actors between every take were, were just like, just puddles of sweat and stripping off their vests and everything. And it was truly like being in this terrible part of the world, dealing with the blistering heat and what those guys must really, you know, a small taste of what those guys really go through. But I feel like all that misery came through on the screen and you really feel that heat and feel that sense of pain for everyone involved in the sequence. On one day in particular, we're jumping in and out of helicopters. We have aerial cameras. We have cameras on camera cars. We have handheld camera inside the helicopter jumping out with the guys. We have tens of thousands of rounds being fired. It's 100 degrees out. The end of that day ended with this group of schoolgirls inside that are being kind of moved as the seals are encroaching. And it's a very simple shot as we're raking across the girls and the camera is, is low, underslung. And the director and I are looking at each other and he's like, should the camera be lower? The camera should be lower. And I'm like, yeah, the camera should be lower. And then we stop and look at each other and we're like, our brains are melting, aren't they? It was like 150 degrees inside this place. The air conditioners were, were, were useless noisemakers at this point. And you had to like step outside into the 100 degree Wilmington heat to breathe a, f a breath of fresh air and get your wits about you before going back inside. It was uh, definitely one of the hottest moments of my career. <laughs> All right, that was Armando Salas. And next up, we have Jas Shelton. Jas Shelton has a great war story from shooting the movie Cyrus and uh, working with uh, John C. Riley, who is a very method actor. When I was doing Cyrus with John C. Riley, there was a scene where he is a driving scene. And we, of course, being the DuPont brothers, we didn't have process trailers and all these things. We were shooting it, I think, either car to car or the car was and the camera was handheld in the back seat and he was actually driving. And that was kind of the advent of the light panel. And they had those one by light panels. And so we spent, you know, all this time rigging this light panel just below kind of the steering wheel to, you know, illuminate John when he's driving. And true to form, John goes out and I explain it to him. And I'm like, here's the light. If you need to turn it off or on, whatever, you know, I gave him a little bit of a rundown on it. And John is like the most, like anything technical kind of is, he considers it a, uh, an obstacle to his performance. So he goes out and this is on the, the two, you know, the two freeway and he drives up and he comes around and he pulls up, about to go do a second take, pulls up right next to me and hands me the light panel out the window. It was like, I'm not gonna need this. Rolls the window back up and takes off. And I'm just left there in the road holding this light panel. And I was like, that that moment defines John C. Riley more than any other thing. Like that entire movie was just moments like that one after the other. All right, so that was Jess Shelton. And uh, Ben, who, who's rounding out this, uh, this War Story 7 episode? So the last DP in War Story 7 is the legendary Brandon Trust. And he has an awesome story about meeting Lauren Michaels right before shooting the movie MacGruber. You know, there was one key moment that really shaped my career in a way uh, as I've shot more and more comedies. And 
it begins with MacGruber. MacGruber! Making life-saving inventions out of household materials. MacGruber! Getting in and out of ultra-sticky situations. And it's one of the first meetings that I had with MacGruber. I had to sit down in a room with, you know, with Yorma Taccone, the director, uh, Will Forte, writer-star, and John Solomon, also one of the writers, and Lorne Michaels. So obviously I'm sort of nervous because it's Lorne Michaels and it's SNL and I was a big fan of all that and that whole, that whole world. But it was this interesting like circle. We were all holding court basically to <laughs> Lorne Michaels. And as he's speaking to everyone, I slowly realized that this is exactly who Mike Myers was uh, impersonating for Dr. Evil. Now, Mr. Evil. Dr. Evil. I didn't spend six years in evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank you very much. I had no idea that that was <laughs> how he speaks. Uh, and it was amazing. So I'm sort of quietly dealing with that while he's sort of going around the circle talking about where they're going to go eat and this and that. And then we start talking about movies. Well, actually, he's just he's talking about uh, how comedy should look and how this movie looks like this and that, and that looks great and this comedy looks like this and that was great. And then he says, I want to make sure everyone's perfectly clear that we're not making an art picture. And then he just looks me dead in the eye like just like that's my job. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, it's going to be great. It's going to look funny. It's going to be it's going to be exactly what you want. And uh, anyway, the, the, the meeting wraps up. It, it seems like it went well. And I, I step aside with Yorma and, I, and chat with him. And I was like, man, we want this movie to look like Die Hard, right? Like this is supposed to look like a, like a dark kind of edgy <laughs> action movie. And Yorma says, oh, yeah, 100 percent. That's what we're going to do. And then, so I made a deal with him. I was like, OK, I'm going to do it. And, and if, <laughs> if we get in trouble, we'll, uh, we'll just change it. And, um, you know, we end up shooting the first day of the film, which is the first scene in the movie when uh, Val Kilmer shows up with all of his henchmen and it's just this sort of really big scope action feeling scene where he <laughs> shoots somebody in the head and it's very serious but it was also very funny because of how serious we made it and in the end everyone liked it and everyone was happy with how it looked and we continued that look through the movie and that, that film ultimately changed my career because you know, every comedian in the industry it seemed liked that movie even though it didn't do very well and particularly liked the way it looked and it was because we kind of stuck our necks out to really not just have your average comedy look you know we wanted the look to be a part of the joke of the movie but I also didn't want the I didn't want the look to look like a comedy ultimately and we sort of just thought you could shoot a movie you could shoot a comedy as a more serious movie with stakes built into the look and still get the humor come across even even more powerfully just because there's a little more tension in it because and I've used that trick uh ever since on every comedy i've done since then and it's it's, it's something that i still use to this day and it's weirdly enough because of <laughs> lord michaels looking at me strangely in a round circle in a, in a strange office at paramount studios All right, Ben, that does it. Uh, that that was that was War Stories Seven. I think it was a wonderful collection of some fantastic stories, and I know this won't be the last one because we're collecting even more right now. And we're getting more from from almost everyone who we interview. Sometimes we don't even hear them; they like record them and send them to us. That's true. So uh, yeah, that's true. It, it was it was fun kind of going down a memory lane though there with uh, with Christian Seabolt. Like uh, that was a good know, one. It's been, yeah, it's been, absolutely. It's been so long. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. All right. Well, I think that's just about going to do it. And uh, we're back to our sort of uh, standard format next week. So uh, until then, uh, thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.